Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number five of Cardboard Time. It is a very sunny day here in Akron, Ohio, and a great day to talk about board games. Today, I'm going to be talking about what I've been playing, do some preview games from AEG, and give you my top 12 new-to-me games for 2020. Well, today's beer of the day is Catawba Island's Water Spout Oatmeal Stout. The Water Spout has a lot of coffee flavor, just a hint of chocolate, and it's very, very smooth. It makes for a great breakfast beer if that's what you're into. Very pleasant beer. I gave it a 4 out of 5 on Untapped. My count update is at 196, and as most of you know that have been following the podcast, that is a pretty heavy increase. The count has gone up significantly because of Black Friday, Christmas, and some new games coming out that looked really, really good good, including a pre-order that I got in and a couple of games I just had to have when I went to go pick that pre-order up. That really helped drive that number up, going up to the Gaming Goat and seeing all the new things that were out that looked really good. Definitely made a couple of purchases there. But the good news is I did avoid the dreaded 200 number, and I'm really hoping to get that number back down below 190 before the new year hits. I will be giving you an updated final count during the next podcast just to let you know what I wound up with at the end of the year. But again, hoping to get that down below 190. As far as what I've been playing, the first game up is Dune Imperium. Now, this was the pre-order that I mentioned. Dune Imperium plays from one to four players in 60 to 120 minutes. It was designed by Paul Denon, the gentleman who designed Clank, which is definitely a favorite around here. And it was published by Dire Wolf Games. In Dune Imperium, players are going to use worker placement and deck building to persuade and fight their way to control over Arrakis. Players are going to play a card that matches with a symbol on the board and place their agent there. Then after the player's two to three agents are played, they expose the rest of their hand, which reveals symbols that will help them in the upcoming area control game at the end of the round and allow them to buy cards from the market. When this was first described to me, it was described to me as worker placement with deck building, and I really found that it was more heavily focused on worker placement. Since there were a limited amount of rounds, you had 10 rounds maximum to work with your cards. The ability to cycle cards was pretty limited unless it was a really heavy focus of yours, which prevented you from doing some other things that you might want to do. I really wondered if cards that were bought late in the game were truly worth the purchase and clogging up your deck and whether it was going to be actually rewarding to kind of build that engine up. It seemed more worth it to me to build up your ability to gain favor with the other factions and to build up your armies for the area control at the end of the round so that you were able to get some of those rewards. That said, the symbology, once you learn it, While it's very plain, it worked extremely well to expedite and streamline the gameplay. I thought that was a very strong point. I really like the interaction of deck building and worker placement with each other. So you did get to do some crafting of your deck and how you put additional cards in there affected 
how you could place your workers during the round. You really did have to stay aware of your deck composition to be able to have a solid chance of executing the desired actions that you want to execute in later rounds. You could only go to spaces on the board that match the symbol played on the card. Due to limited rounds, deck building without a purpose is really heavily punished. And this game definitely has the feel of Dune through the gameplay, the warring factions, the intrigue cards that you got that got you different abilities, even the stark board design, which really a lot of people kind of talked about and said, well, this is kind of a plain, boring looking board. And I thought that that actually worked for the theme because Dune is a very stark, kind of boring place. There is a ton of interaction in this game. So if you don't like direct interaction with other players, this might be a game that you want to avoid. This game is really a three to four player game. And it does have cards to drive one to two Otoma players for the solo and two player games. You cannot play without them. If you are playing solo or playing a two player game, you must use the Otoma to simulate those players to get yourself up to at least a three-player count. So this was really designed to be a three to four-player game. The Otoma does work fine. It's very simple, very clean. It does create good obstructions and drives up tracks, and it does factor into fights at the end of each round. If you use the app instead of the cards, it also simulates market churn, which is also a very welcome feature. The special player ability that you got seemed to be lacking until the end of the game, so my special player ability was to be able to see what was next on the draw pile. So until the end of the game where I was really trying to plan out all my actions very carefully and see what was ahead, I really didn't use that special ability. I knew what I was kind of going to cycle through, so it didn't factor that much into the game. I will be interested to see how the other characters play. They do have some asymmetric powers and abilities. This game will be staying on my shelf. Originally, I was thinking about getting the upgraded resources and miniatures. I don't think I'm going to make that investment, I think that investment would be much better spent upgrading another game or potentially getting something else into my collection. This game is really good. I did definitely enjoy it and will be interested in some further play, especially once I can get it out to the table with live opponents. And that was Dune Imperium. Well, the next game that I have to talk about is from one of my favorite designers. It is Bonfire. Bonfire plays from one to four players in 70 to 100 minutes. It was designed by none other than Stefan Feld and published by Hall Games and Pegasus Spiel. In Bonfire, gnomes are trying to perform tasks for the Guardians of Light to reignite bonfires. Bonfires give points, much like everything else in this game, and whoever manages to earn the greatest trust from the Guardians will win the game, and that essentially equates to scoring the most points. Players will place three color tiles to get action tiles of the matching color on their player board. It sounds confusing, but in reality, once you see it, it's not that bad. They then use those tiles to perform the corresponding actions in order to score points. So essentially, you have these 
one by three tiles that you're placing on a board. Depending on how you place them, you get the corresponding action tiles. I really like Steffenfeld, so this was an absolute must purchase for me. I backed the recent Kickstarter by Queen Games that had the deluxe edition reprints and reimagining of some of the Feld classics that are hard to get your hands on. So Obviously, this was going to be a must-purchase for me. This game is very brain-burnery, which I expected going in with a very large number of different resources and actions. It is kind of a daunting task to learn. That said, once you learn them, the actions interlock very well, and the game does feel like one big system, which does help drive the point of what each action is for and why they're there. So once you've seen most of the actions, it's very easy to see how they interlocked and interact with each other. This game, as I said, is tons of point salad. There are so many scoring opportunities that you are going to get throughout this game through the different tasks. There's a lot of points to be had here at the end of the game. Chaining actions with each other in this game is incredibly satisfying. So you're going to be playing an action which will allow you to maybe get another action tile or... If you perform one action like sailing to an island, you can also pick up a corresponding task at that island. So really being as efficient as possible and making sure that you're using those action tiles very wisely is the whole point of the game. There is a lot of unintentional interaction with the positioning of the central bonfire in this game. So you have a bonfire that is turning. In the central bonfire, you use that as an action to gain other actions, resources, and these portals that will also give you points. So it's turning around clockwise, and as players are going and turning that bonfire around, maybe you are going to get to it in a couple of turns, but now that bonfire is no longer in the position that you really want it, so there is some definite interaction there. Solo play is extremely simple once you get through all the cards once. There's only eight cards, so they're very easy to learn what they do, but they do press on the game very well. They hit all the spots that they're supposed to, and they kind of drive the game on as a actual player would. So I was very happy with the solo mode in this game. Setup can be a bit of a bear, but the core game is absolutely worth it. I needed a nap after I played this, but the game was definitely worth the work, and it does sit very high on my list of felds. There's going to be one that I talk about later, and I think this might top that, but I don't know if it's exactly at the top of my list. I'm going to reserve final judgment for that after I play with human players. And that was Bonfire. Well, the last game that I want to talk about that I've been playing is Viscounts of the West Kingdom. Viscounts plays from one to four players in 60 to 90 minutes, designed by Shem Phillips and S.J. McDonald, and it's published by Garp Hill and Renegade Games. In Viscounts of the West Kingdom, players are Viscounts, looking to gain favor amongst the people, which... Again, victory points. Through constructing buildings, writing manuscripts, working in the castle, and acquiring deeds for new land. Players are going to start with townsfolk, which are cards, but they can acquire other specialists to help score points. Players are going to advance around a rondelle, and they are going to take an action to increase their influence, 
which, again, is scoring points. Action strength is determined based on the shared symbology between three cards on a constantly cycling tableau. So you are always going to have three cards in front of you, and the symbols on those three cards are going to determine the strength of the actions that you're going to be able to take. Buildings give a one-time as well as permanent bonuses, such as uncovered symbols, extra card draw, and other special abilities. And there's also a corruption and virtue track, which has to be considered as certain cards have a positive or negative effect, depending on your strategy. Your corruption will start at one end, your virtue will start at another end, and where the two meet will give you certain bonuses or negatives, depending on where they land. I really enjoyed the deck crafting in this game. It was very simple, it was very straightforward. During the game, you can pick cards up or you can use their symbols as a one-time ability by paying for them. So there's a sense of deck crafting. Do I really want this card in my hand for future use or do I just want the symbols on this card for an immediate bonus? You definitely had to focus on one or two paths to victory in this game. So in both the games that I played, I had a main path and a sub path. So I knew kind of what I wanted to focus on and I also knew what I wanted to focus on to kind of help me along in that path. So the first game that I had, I focused on building and writing manuscripts. Both of those gave me bonuses that worked well with each other. And then the second game, there's a central tower that you can place workers into. So I use that and writing manuscripts. I stayed on the inside of the board as there's two tracks. There's an outside rondelle and then an inside rondelle, which you can move back and forth between. Building and shopping actions, which will give you resources and allow you to improve your deeds and get rid of your debts, are on the outside track. On the inside track are writing the manuscripts and being able to place workers in the tower. So I felt that as long as I could stay on the inside track, it was going to better suit me to place workers and write manuscripts as opposed to constantly switching back and forth between the two tracks inside and outside. Everything that you do in this game gives you victory points and other bonuses, so you're going to get some sort of victory point by placing a building, writing a manuscript, placing a worker, and then you're going to get some other bonus as well for the most part. Most of the time, the game definitely felt like it was a exercise in efficiency and optimization, which is kind of my jam. I really like games that do that, and I really like making a nice, efficient engine, so this game was very satisfying for that. There is a lot of opportunity for culling and discarding, so for people who really like to make an efficient deck, this game allows for that in spades. I really enjoyed this game. Probably out of the three that I talked about, it would be a contest between Bonfire and Viscounts, between which one I liked more, but at least with Viscounts, it was light enough that I felt like I could play another game. Bonfire definitely churned that those brain juices, and I, I really kind of needed to take a break after that, where Viscounts, I was ready to go for another game game after playing my first one. Out of the Western Kingdom trilogy, I haven't played Paladins, but I really like this better than Architects, even with my affinity for worker placement games. I talked about that before on the podcast, 
where I have a ton of worker placement games. This does place ahead of that, not saying that Architects is a bad game whatsoever. I think it's great, but Viscounts just kind of hit that spot a little bit better. For solo gaming, this did have a little bit of a learning curve, trying to figure out what the symbols meant, trying to figure out how that solo player really acted, but once you did, it was easy to follow the symbols. You would normally have some sort of resource ability or point gathering activity, then they would move and then they would try to take an action, whether it be build or write a manuscript or place workers. So those were things that kind of came easy once you got through the learning curve of knowing what the actual symbols meant, because this is a very symbol heavy game. So overall, Viscounts of the West Kingdom, great game. I'm looking forward to playing this some more. That was Viscounts of the West Kingdom. Well, up next on Kickstarter Corner, we have one Kickstarter for you today, as well as a preview of two new games by AEG. Make sure you stick around. Well, welcome back to Kickstarter Corner. Joining me today is Phil, once again. Hello, greetings and salutations. So we've got a couple of things to talk about today. One game that I backed, and then we're going to talk about a couple of games that we previewed from AEG uh, after that. But I want to talk about the Ugly Griffin Inn, which is a game that I backed on Kickstarter. It is a solo game by Button Shy. If you're not familiar with Button Shy, they make very small, compact games. Usually they try to stay to the 18 card or less kind of count just to make things really nice, portable, compact, easy to carry, fits in your pocket or your purse. It, it's just a very nice size. In the Ugly Griffin Inn, you are managing your patron's needs. You run this in and you want to make sure that your patrons come in, they're happy, and they also sleep soundly. In order to do that, you need to manage their irks. So they have different things that kind of irk them and set them off. For example, there's certain noisy neighbors that they don't want to hear. And if you put them next to somebody who's going to be noisy, they're going to get irked and something is going to happen. There's also a phase where if you have too many patrons in the bar that do certain things, they'll get irked as well. And those two things actually wind up triggering a effect, which will then potentially cascade and irk other patrons as well. There were multiple pledge levels to this, and I started off at the $10 level, which was the base game and the expansion. Very cheap, very affordable. Then I looked and went up the chain. There was another expansion that I said, oh, that sounds interesting. And then I saw that they were also packaging Food Chain Island that they had come out with. I've heard a ton of good things about this game and its expansions as well. Then I went up another level to ultimately the $55 level, and it included the Ugly Griffin Inn, all the expansions, Food Chain Island in the expansions, and a button shy bag, which holds 18 of their games. I already have Tussie Mussy. It's a very nice game. It's very easy to play with just about anybody. I think that I'm probably going to wind up getting more of Button Shy's catalog in the future. So I thought, why why not go and get this bag and add that on as well? So I originally wasn't 
looking to back anything over the holidays. I did go on a shopping trip, as I had mentioned earlier, so I didn't necessarily need more to back. I have a ton of stuff that's still going to be coming in that I'm waiting on. January should be a very interesting month for my mailbox. It's probably going to wind up overflowing with Crokinole and Merlin and Chai and all sorts of good stuff. But Phil, I know that you were looking at this at one point. What caused you to kind of shy away from that? Primarily the fact that I have a number of Kickstarters already in the queue that I'm waiting on receiving and Christmas right around the corner, uh, if that's your bag. But, you know, just uh, an expected influx of stuff. And I just, I don't know. I just wasn't sure if I, if that game just didn't trip my trigger. We'll just put it that way. I, I liked it. I thought it was cute. I looked at it briefly. Solo games don't normally go for me. Uh, there is a solo game that I back that I'm waiting on. The campaign ended a month or so back, but that one was very gimmicky. This one looked interesting, but I don't know. There were just other things that I was looking at at the time. And so that one just didn't rise to the top in terms of needing my attention. I have to ask, what solo game was that? It was The Dead Eye, a uh, French game, but it was kind of interesting because it is a stereoscopic 3D, the red-blue 3D. So you wear the glasses, you explore this world in three dimensions. It's a choose-your-own-adventure style game. Oh, that's kind of cool. And so I saw them at, I saw the game at, I think it was Origins a couple years back. They were there and I wanted to get a chance to check them out. But due to time and some illness on my brother's part, I wasn't able to get to the booth and dive into it. So when I saw the Kickstarter show up, it was drew me to it. And so I backed it because I know I had been interested in it from a couple years prior. And it sounds like a very interesting aesthetic with the 3D glasses and everything. Kind of sounds like a retro kind of aesthetic from when we were kids. Yeah, it's it's very much the Blade Runner. Like uh, the art style is very much uh, the post-apocalyptic uh, Mad Max sort of vibe. But the red and blue, definitely the, the 3D definitely goes, yeah, to that retro sort of aesthetic. That sounds pretty cool. I yeah. would definitely, I'd definitely look at that. That's the problem with Kickstarter. You never know what's necessarily up there all the time. You get the popular games. And then if you do a little bit more deep diving, sometimes you can find some real treasures like that. Yeah. And that's pretty much what it ended up being was I just, I, I happened to log in at the right time. I think I caught it like three days before it was ending and just pulled the trigger on it. So we got a surprise email from AEG and they were looking to demo a couple of games that are inbound in the first quarter or a little bit more of 2021. One of them I was very excited about already. And then the other was kind of a sleeper hit if you, uh, you know, mind the pun <laughs> that uh, you guys are going to understand in a minute. The first one that I do want to talk about is Cubitos. Cubitos was a very interesting game. It seemed to me like a mix of couriers and a racing game, a lot of dice building. And when I say dice building, it's, it's more dice pool building. It's not a dice building like Dice Forge. It's more of a couriers or a Dice Masters style pool building game. There's a lot of pressure luck in it involved as well. I just really enjoyed the dice building engine and the pressure luck mechanics. I'm a big pressure luck fan and I'm a, a, a big engine building fan. 
So really having those two together along with the race aspect on top of that was pretty interesting to me. Phil, I know that you weren't necessarily as big on it as I was. What did you think of the game? It had its fun. I think the a problem that arises with games like that can always be the question of strategy when you're first learning a game. So there was definitely a portion of that is just understanding what strategy needed to be and how you need to approach it. But that's a common pitfall in a lot of games. I think the other thing that soured my experience with the game was having to start and stop and fits to really understand how the game was working. I I like the pressure luck mechanic. I like the deck building or dice building mechanic, but I just feel that there are other games that handle that sort of thing a bit better. Like, well, it's not dice building quacks of Quindlinburg, just handle that random race mechanic in a better fashion. Like it was a bit more obvious what you were getting, what, what was going on in quacks and why you didn't have that dice rolling mechanic there was still other things taking place to mitigate some of that so i had fun i played again i think the other thing that was a negative for me in the experience is tabletop simulator this was definitely a game that feels like it needs to be tactile you want to get your hands on those dice you want to be able to have that pool of dice in front of you hear the clacking feel them just roll out of your hand watch them tumble all over the place and see them not land on any of the faces that you need them to land on and curse the fates for that. While Tabletop does its damnedest to give you that effect, it's just not there. And so maybe if we had a chance to play this again face-to-face, I think I'd probably really enjoy it. I just, it, it is one of those games, sadly, that is not done favors in the digital world. I think that's a great point, Phil. And that was something that I was going to bring up a little bit later was just the fact that I'm I'm really looking forward to receiving this in the mail because I think to really give this game its due, the table presence is going to add to it, the tactile feel. There's always something lost with dice on Tabletop Simulator. It just doesn't quite feel right. And Tabletop Sim has been great during the whole pandemic for the fact that we're able to still stay in touch. We're still able to play these games that we love, but there's just only so much that you can functionally do on Tabletop Simulator to really replicate that. I think with the absence of like tactile gloves and VR and that maybe might replicate that a little bit better, there's really only so much that you can do about it. I do think that it is going to have a nice table presence to it. I think it's also something that's going to be a lot more intuitive instead of having to scroll around the board and try to figure out, okay, well, what does this do? What does that do? It's going to be right there for you in person. You can pick up the card, put it down, and just have those real quick moments where you go in and say, oh, okay, this makes sense to me. I definitely think that that's a thing. That's a really good point. The board that we played on seemed to be really well balanced, and that's something that we talked about after our playthrough. There's an outside lane and kind of an inside lane, and you're able to shift between, I I think it was maybe four wide or so, if I'm remembering correctly, but you're able to shift between those lanes freely. So it's an oval And with the outside lane, you are going to take longer to get around the track. And your goal is to wind up making your way around the track and finishing first. 
that's that's the big goal of the game. The thing that I saw was, well, this this inside track is a lot shorter. Why would I go to these outside spaces when I can just, you know, go fewer spaces and make it to the finish line a lot faster? The representative that we played with wound up taking more of that outside route. And on the outside route, there's a lot more abilities to call your dice, which is a very, very important thing in this game. Probably the most important concept. You're going to be buying dice and you have nine starter dice that you're you're going to want to get out of your hand fairly quickly. And so having the ability to reduce the amount of those starter dice and get to your really good dice that you really want and that are going to engage more of this engine that you're building to get you to that finish line faster and faster becomes extremely important. I also really enjoyed the fact that you always had at least three dice to work with. You're going to roll at least nine dice on your turn which seems like a lot, but it didn't quite seem like a lot when it got down to six. You basically have to roll until you get three face results. So three faces that are showing something. On every die, you have a certain amount of faces that are blank and a certain amount of faces that have a symbol on them. So once you get to three dice out of your nine or more, potentially if you upgrade that, once you get those dice, then you have the option of pressing your luck and saying, I'm going to roll the remaining dice that I have and see if I can at least get one more face out of those. Now you have six dice that you're trying to get a face on. And then if you get a couple more, now you've got four dice that you're trying to get a face on. So I really did enjoy the fact that you always had at least three dice to work on, you know, before you stopped. So you might have had a poor initial roll, but at least you had something. You weren't hampered by having nothing and saying, well, you got to work with this. And I thought that that was good. Agreed. There was a consolation prize for busting as well, which... I wound up not really getting much of, but I think you and Kyle both. I got a few of the Constellation Prizes, but I never felt that it really made a difference because you had to. So so when you busted, i.e. you attempted to roll more and you got no icons on any of the dice. Uh, so you pressed your luck, your luck failed you. Uh, and considering that most dice had on average a 66% chance of not having anything on them, pressing your luck is tricky at best. So when you get nothing, you have a little sidetrack that you can run up when you're busted that give you permanent coin every round or an extra die to roll when it happens. And there are, I think there were 13 spots on that board, assuming that you'd bust 13 times. So so 13 spots, great. But the likelihood of you making it anywhere near that seemed slim since I think we were done in a matter of nine rounds, give or take, maybe more. It definitely went by pretty quick and it just didn't seem to make to be enough of a bonus to catch up. I think the intent was a was to mitigate the runaway, which I think is important in a race game is to have a mitigation for the runaway. Um, and for those that don't know what I mean by the runaway, it is somebody that has made it so obviously into the lead that efforts to continue the game are meaningless because that person has already won. They've run away, run away with the lead. And there are games that try to mitigate that. So someone can get far 
far ahead and through other mechanics, you can slow them down. What is that from Mario Kart, the blue shell? It, it helps bring that person back into the group. And I just didn't feel that it made that much of a difference. Now that could just be me and my luck. I don't know. Dude did pretty well, the guy that was teaching it. So I think he managed to leverage that to his advantage, but I didn't feel that it was as balancing as it wanted to be. There was another mitigation method with the lines in the track where if you were a certain number of lines behind... A lot like Quacks at Quedlinburg, there was that catch-up mechanic where now you're rolling more dice, depending on how many lines behind. So I had a fairly good lead to begin with. I think I was like three or four lines ahead of you guys. But that also meant that instead of rolling nine dice, now you're rolling 13, 14 dice. So I thought that that was well implemented as well. I would agree. I think that was the better catch-up mechanic. I thought that the consolation prize was, it was definitely nice to have it there. I felt a good incentive to at least push to four or five instead of just staying. I wanted to push it to four or five. The the, the theming was really good. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not going to lie, but I don't know. I thought the game had uh, some good and some bad. I would definitely play it again. I wouldn't be opposed to playing it at a at a con or over at your house. I do have a copy that's coming my way. I am so excited to get this out. But again, I think that this is really something that needs to be at the table to really get the full experience. I can just kind of tell that from the online play that we had. Not that I regret going in and doing it because it was it was a fun experience, but I really think that you need that on the table presence to really kind of solidify something like this. So the other game that we played was kind of an afterthought for me. I had both of these sessions booked. I was only going to book Cubitos, but the other game was kind of like, okay, this looks all right. You know, I guess guess I'll take a look at it. And we were very, very surprised by Sheepy Time. Phil, what were your thoughts? Do you do you kind of want to give a quick description about Sheepy Time? It's uh it's adorbs. <laughs> Plain and simple, it's adorbs. You know, they could have as an aside and I'll I'll get to it. They could have themed this in a lot of ways. Uh but I think they did a good thing in theming it the way that they did. So, the premise is that your uh sheep that are trying to get their person to count enough of them that they get a good night's sleep. The problem is that your sleep can be disturbed by a nightmare or some other horror, like the monster in the closet or the big bad wolf or something along those lines, a scary spider. And so as sheep, you are trying to count lapse enough times that your person gets enough winks and enough solid so winks and then there's a pillow which represents the sleep time uh, that you want to get your winks to meet up with your pillow so one is moving in a positive direction from zero to 40 and the pillow is moving in a negative direction from 40 to zero and you need to try and figure out ways to get both of those to move to meet each other with 
the winks resetting at the end of every round while the pillow does not. So as your sheep is running around the board, you have to, uh, you kind of cause some problems for other players, but you also have to watch out for the nightmare that's on the board. The way the game operates is you have two cards in your hand. You pick uh, one of those two cards to play, and then you draw a card to replace it. Each card that you play has typically an or action. So it's move up to two spaces or take two winks or take a Z, which is currency allows you to buy special actions and you use that to depending upon what it is you want to do. And then you draw a new card. So you do have choices in how you're trying to play things. And when I talk about manipulating things for your opponents is you can do actions that might move your opponents or special actions that might move you close to your opponents or move you further away from the nightmare. So your opponent is more likely to get hit by the nightmare than you are. But ultimately it just, once we got into it and started moving it, it was late. I know Arwen and I were both tired, but the game just kept moving so fast and so smoothly that we just didn't even realize that we were approaching in game until we looked at the board and went, Oh shoot, Phil only needs five more Z's and R1 only needs eight and that's game. And, and we were just there. It, it starts slow, kind of like trying to go to sleep and then picks up super fast. And the next thing you know, you're awake and the game's over. It's uh, I feel like I'm butchering the description of it, but I, I thought it was really just a fun. Uh, and as Arwen said earlier, sleeper of a game, you don't realize that it's, that it required so much strategy or forethought until you're in the middle of it. And you realize that it's just this really nice, simple exterior for a game that had some decent meat on it. Now, if the meat you're looking for is serious meat and potato stuff, you're not going to find it here. But if you're looking for a nice, fun game that actually requires you to have decision-making skills and some foresight about how you want to try and play your cards out, it it's there. You, you are not going to just place shoots and ladders, roll the die, take your move, and call it a night. You really need to think about what you're doing to try and win. So yeah, I was impressed with it. <laughs> if you picked up on that. Yeah, just a little bit. I know that you were surprised as I was to see the weight of this game. And, and it's not necessarily super weighty, but when I looked at the description and the box cover doing a quick cursory glance, I looked at it and I said, well, yeah, it's going to be a kid's game. And, and th it's really true that you can't judge a box by its cover. You do have to look at it and say, okay, well, what's inside of this box? And, and that's a really good lesson with this game. I thought that there was a really fun engine building experience in between rounds when you reset. Uh, as Phil mentioned, you actually get to pick a special ability to put out onto the board. And you get an advantage in using that ability. So like Phil said, you have these Zs that are your currency that you can go and pay to use these abilities that are on the outside of the board. Once the game starts going, it starts off slow and you start off, okay, I'm going to play this card to move this many spaces and maybe you might hit an ability. But once the game gets into its second third round, you're chaining these abilities together and creating this little engine for yourself where I'm creating Zs, I'm using them over here to move forward, I'm using that space that I moved forward to to do something else. It's just such a really satisfying 
experience and and some good pressure luck mechanisms as well. I'll admit I'm I'm give or take on that. It depends on how the pressure luck element is handled. You thought that it was pretty good in here though. I, I did think it was definitely well done. It the the pressure lock element is very much that of uh, or is very similar to that of uh, pandemic. You have a bunch of nightmare cards that are shuffled into the main deck. And so if you draw a nightmare card, the nightmare moves. And so if the nightmare ever crosses a, a given threshold, so ten spaces, everybody wakes up from a night terror, and the round is over. And so you need to anticipate trying to get as many points as you can before the nightmare crosses the threshold. But so you need to do that before the nightmare crosses the threshold. But you need you cross the threshold. When you cross the threshold, you have the option to rest, to stop moving. If you do that and you have the most points, you get to move your pillow the farthest distance. However, if you don't choose to rest and the nightmare hits the threshold, you get three points for your pillow instead of potentially 10. So you need to determine, is it worth it for me to try and get one more cycle around the board to move my pillow? Or is it worth it to me to just stop now and hope that the nightmare can hit 10 before my opponents can take a lead on me? So there's your press your luck element. It is random, but it doesn't feel nearly as random as the blanks on dice did to me in Cubitos. It, it just felt less uh, less aggressive than it did in Cubitos. One of the things with this that I really kind of appreciated was that the theme and the gameplay are really both accessible to your younger and less experienced audiences, but you still have gameplay that's going to keep your more experienced gamers entertained. So families will be able to get this to the table and you're not going to necessarily be able to get a four-year-old to the table with this, but your younger, I don't know, Phil, what would you say? Maybe six to, to eight would be a good start to get this game out with. I think you could. Some of the strategy might be lost at them at that point. There's no guarantee. I mean, everybody knows their kids best, but I definitely would find this game to be less complex than Grim Forest. And I've known eight-year-olds that picked up on that pretty well. So I would definitely think it's open to younger people. And honestly, when I when I said before they could have themed this in any way, they chose this theming to try and make it accessible to younger audiences. And they could have done it in a variety of ways. And I think it works. I want to say that Vlad, who was the gentleman that was demoing the game for us, actually said that it started off as kind of like a horror nightmare kind of game. And then they said, let's try to retheme this. And I do. I agree with you. I think that it was a really, really good decision to do that. It, it makes for a really excellent introductory engine building game. So getting those engine building skills together and kind of teaching at a young age, hey, these are some things that maybe if you go here and you spend this, you can go over here and do this as well. Just trying to get people engaged with that concept, I think that this really does that in a, in a very good way as well. The downside to this, and I, I know that I said, I think that they made a good choice with the theme. If I saw this on the shelf just by the theme alone, I would probably pass it up at a game store. But I think that this would have a place in my collection. It would be good to play with some of our more casual groups or even just ourselves, you know, to get a quick maybe end of the night game where you wouldn't have to think too much, but you were still engaged. 
And we've we've talked about those games in the past as well. But I really don't know how you could change this without ruining the charm of the scene. I think really the way that this game is going to succeed is through word of mouth, people kind of talking about it and, and getting the word about it out there. So I really, really enjoyed this game and I can't overstate how surprised I was at this. Oh yeah, same here. Hands down. I thought it was really good. So that was Sheepy Time. Well, stay tuned because up next, I'm going to talk about my top 12 and a few more games of the year. And welcome back to the last segment for Cardboard Time in the year 2020. And I want to talk about my top new games to me for 2020. Looking back on 2020, I played 164 games this year with 138 new games to me this year. So I compiled a new to me for 2020 top 12 that I posted on Instagram. If you are interested in seeing that, go to cardboard underscore time on Instagram. And this is current as of December 9th. So the games I mentioned on the top of the show are not included in this list for consideration. One thing that I didn't do on Instagram was put the honorable mentions. And I want to go through this very briefly right now for those interested. These are games that I felt were worthy to be on the list, but they just didn't make the cut. Number 22 was the Taverns of Tiefenthal. Number 21 was Pulsar 2849. 20 was Deus. 19 was Emotep. 18 was Warp's Edge. 17, Yokohama. 16, The Crew, The Quest for Planet 9. 15 was Robinson Crusoe, Adventures on the Cursed Island, which, of course, I have yet to win. Number 14 was Cartographers. And number 13, just missing the list, was Star Wars Imperial Assault. So now on to my top 12. Coming in at number 12 was Steffenfeld's Bora Bora. It is a point salad game with great interlocking mechanisms. I really, really liked the dice utilization and player interaction that this game had. So the better the dice that you use, the better the action. But because of how you place those dice, you have the potential to lock out an opponent by playing a lower die in that spot. So you always have to consider, do I want this really powerful action or will I take maybe this less powerful action? in order to deny my opponent something that they really, really want. Number 11 was Zulkin the Mayan Calendar. This is a fantastic worker placement game. The longer a worker stays on the central gear mechanism, the better actions that they get as those gears turn. So if you haven't seen Zulkin, definitely take the time to look it up. It is a very unique game. Number 10 is New Frontiers. And New Frontiers was the Race for the Galaxy board game. Felt a lot like Puerto Rico, but it solved a lot of the major shortcomings that I found from Puerto Rico, the biggest one of which is the major advantage that a more experienced player might have with a newer player at the table, because a newer player at the table might not take the quote-unquote optimized turn that they really need to take, because Puerto Rico, in long and short with very experienced players, is somewhat of a solved game. So this really randomized 
randomizes a couple of things where they need to be randomized in order to avoid that. And I really think that this game is pretty, pretty solid. Number nine is Rising Sun. And I finally got this game to the table after a long time of sitting on my shelf. I backed this on Kickstarter when it came out. This game has magnificent table presence. And I really, really like the combat system in it. It avoids just that straight up combat that you see in a lot of games. And this really keeps opponents guessing as to what moves you're going to make. So I really appreciated what they did with that. Number eight is Russian Railroad. This was a great find. I bought this at Half Price Books fairly cheap after looking it up on Board Game Geek and Board Game Prices and seeing that it is a pretty expensive game. I'm glad that I snagged a copy because I saw it was so highly rated. Russian Railroads looks like average worker placement on its surface. What's keeping it on my shelf is the railway building system that rapidly escalates points. As your engine builds and you're getting your engine going, your point scoring ability gets more and more and is such a engaging system that you're going to be starting off in the first round scoring just a few points. And by the end of the game, you're scoring 10, 20, 30 points at a time very easily as this engine builds. It is such a satisfying game. I really love it. Number eight, Russian Railroads. Number seven for me was Mansions of Madness. I finally got the opportunity to play this this year. It was actually Phil's copy. He had been bugging me to play it for the longest time. And finally, we got it out to the table. This is my favorite fantasy flight crawl in a box type game where you're going around a building or a dungeon. This just edged out Imperial Assault for me. I did find this more engaging. It had a deeper storyline. I really enjoyed it. The spells and damage cards were awesome. The things that you do up front that might have consequences will resolve themselves at a later time, which I really, really like that system. The app streamlines a lot of the fiddly player decisions. Number six for me this year was Brass Birmingham. And I played Brass Lancashire at the beginning of the year. I had a copy of the 2007 release and I really enjoyed it. I thought it was great. So when I saw Birmingham on the shelves at a good price, I heard about the addition of beer as a resource, enhancing the game dramatically. I had to pick this up. The nice aesthetic from Roxley Games really also helped my decision quite a bit, and I am very glad that I got this because it replaced Brass Lancashire as my favorite of the two. The flow of both the games is so unique because you want opponents to use up the resources that you've generated in order to flip the buildings that you've created, and that increases your turn income so you're able to do more things on later turns, and that kind of builds an engine up. So while it's bad that opponents are building buildings because they're starting to get points and they're starting to get resources, you actually want them to use up your resources by building those buildings and flipping those tiles. It's a really unique system. I really like it. Number six, Brass Birmingham. My number five was Rococo, and Rococo is a wonderful game about dressmaking. It is such a satisfying game. There are a ton of elements that 
are found elsewhere in this game. Area control, economics, and deck building. But these are put into one package and just seem so much more satisfying than their implementations in other games. Your workers get chosen from a pool of your draw deck instead of randomly drawn. So you're building your deck up and you have that draw deck, but instead of just randomly drawing your workers, you're actually able to pick your draw deck up, look through it and say, I want to play these three on my turn. And that is so unique and so incredibly satisfying because you're able to do the actions that you really want to do on that turn, unless your opponent takes the action that you want before you. Workers can be deployed for additional money in order to thin out your deck choices and increase cycling, which I also really liked. I will be talking about it on a upcoming podcast. I played it with Justin as a precursor to getting the deluxe edition that was put out this year by Eagle Griffin Games. It was kind of one of my grail games for a long time that I really wanted to play and have, but I didn't get the opportunity to do that until just this year. So that was my number five, Rococo. Number four for me this year was Title Blades, Heroes of the Reef. And this was a Kickstarter that finally came in after two years in development and shipping, but it was so incredibly worth it. It is a visually stunning worker placement game with a beautifully crafted world and great components. As soon as I saw Druid City and Skybound's Placed on this game, I knew what I was getting into, and it was almost like an insta back for me. It is so incredibly well done. A lot of dice rolling, but there's plenty of mitigation for those dice. You're upgrading your dice and specializing in certain areas. And eventually, what's interesting is those dice are going to go away. So you're going to build up these dice, and then those dice go away, and they get used. You get to build up even faster because you're building your character up as well. You're able to take on these tougher trials and stronger enemies as the game progresses. It's just incredibly satisfying. There's also a bit of pressure luck in there, just kind of sprinkled on for good measure. That is number four, Title Blades, Heroes of the Reef. Now on to the top three, my number three three game new to me for this year was Mage Knight, the board game. This took me forever to learn. I got this to the table so many times and tried to learn it and unfortunately wasn't able to really make it stick until this year. So I just set aside a day and I said, I'm going to make sure that by the end of the day, I have learned and played this game. It was incredibly worth it. I've talked about this more at length on episode three if you want more details, but to put it plainly and simply, it's great exploration, combat, deck building with a very well done solo mode. I hope to get it to the table soon when I have some time. That is Mage Knight. My number two should not be a surprise to anybody. Probably some people were waiting to hear where this was going to wind up on my list because I've talked so highly about it, and that is Calico. It is the definition of easy to learn and hard to master. I discussed it on the last episode, and it really gives a fantastic, satisfying puzzle with a very accessible theme. I cannot talk enough about how great this game is to bring out with a wide audience and and be able to play it with 
so many people. This game is so easy to teach, but it's very puzzly and just very, very satisfying. The colorblindness accessibility on this, also, it is so awesome. Calico is my number two only to be outdone by one game this year, and that is a game that I have not talked a lot about because it came out around April this year onto my table, and that is Great Western Trail. And this game is so high on the BGG Top 100 list for a reason. It is such an amazing deck-building game that sees players trying to optimize their hands and sell off cows that will give them the most points when they reach the end of the trail, while they construct buildings along the way that kind of help drive their efficiency engine as they go round and round and round through the different seasons on the trail. This is my favorite Rondell game. It has tons of replayability. Trails are built up differently every single time, which creates new combos. You're able to really cycle through your hand and be able to build up that perfect hand, the game that will hopefully be able to be taught once we're back into in-person gaming. That is my number one for the year, Great Western Trail. Well, I'd be interested to see what your comments and feedback on this list are, and I'd be interested to see what your top 12 of this year are. So please make sure that you leave comments on our social media about what those games are. Well, I just want to take this time as it is the last show of the year to thank everyone for your support this year through these five episodes. So that is going to do it for us today. Again, I hope you have a fantastic holiday season and a wonderful start to your new year when we talk to you next. It is going to be 2021. As always, make sure that you check out our Facebook. My Instagram is cardboard underscore time. Check out our Board Game Geek podcast page. If you go to anchor.fm, you can actually send a voice message and let me know what you think of the show. If you do have any questions, suggestions, or ideas for discussion topics, email cardboardtime at gmail.com. And as always, thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again in two weeks in 2021 for another episode of Cardboard Time.